This morning we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the title of the series is uh, Making Sense of Life, I believe. I believe that's the, t- yes it is, Making Sense of Life. And um, in this book, what's going on is that we were uh, very beginning introduced to uh, the preacher. And the preacher is one who is sharing his reflections with us throughout this book. And what the preacher is attempting to do is discover the key that would unlock the meaning of all things. In other words, it would be that thing that would give him access to uh, being able to comprehensively figure out everything about life and piece it all together in such a way that he would have this position of leverage um, where he would feel control and security. And what keeps happening with each Um, section with each uh, topic is that he keeps coming up empty in his pursuit. He can't find that key that would give him that uh, ability or, or that control and security that he's looking for. And so he shares with us a constant refrain. It's basically a summary of his pursuit, which is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And what we've said is that the best translation is really vapor. Life is vapor. In other words, as far as it goes in trying to identify that key that makes sense of everything, it's like vapor. It's elusive. Soon as you think you might have your uh, grip on it, it disappears. And this, I think, resonates with us in life as we search out for Um, fulfillment in life, as we search out for control and and leverage, and we just can't quite find it. Well, this morning, um, the the preacher is going to share some wisdom with us. I mean, he's doing that throughout the book. Remember, uh, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and the wisdom literature imparts wisdom to us so that we can uh, navigate life well in God's world. Um, But specifically, the wisdom that the preacher wants to offer us this morning has to do with proper worship etiquette. In other words, how how should we act when we come into God's house for worship? Uh, What should our behavior be? Um, So let me read uh, Ecclesiastes 5 for us, the first seven verses, and we're going to hear this wisdom from the preacher. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know when they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay repaying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
open the word of life to us this morning in such a way that we might actually be changed. And I pray that you would do this for us regardless of where we are in this exact moment, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe when it comes to the claims of Jesus. We pray um, that you would receive the glory from the change that you bring about in our lives. Amen. I want to start by sharing a wise saying with you. It's not a wise saying because I invented it, um, but I think once you hear it, you'll agree that it's true and really is universally true. The wise saying is this, that how you act in one space isn't necessarily how you should act in another space. Let me give you some examples to fill this out. How you act at a rock concert, for example, uh, probably isn't how you should act in a school lecture. Agreed? I mean, maybe you act how you want in a school lecture, but uh, my guess is that the people around you would think that you're foolish and not wise if you did so. Um, how you act at a football game, um, whether it be um, what we call football here in America or what they call football everywhere else in the world, um, whether it, how you act at a, a football game is not how you act at a golf tournament or a tennis match. Um, how you act at it, we, we could keep going and going, but I think you get the point. Um, there, there's wisdom in knowing how to act in certain settings or spaces. And when you don't know the rules governing how you should act, whether they are spoken or unspoken, it can be awkward, right? Um, it can sometimes lead you into feeling foolish when you don't comply with those expectations. Well, this is kind of what's going on here in, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, the preacher is sharing wisdom with us about how to act when we go to worship. That is corporate worship, communal worship. How to act when we go into the house of God. And what we're going to see here is that the preacher offers us two pieces of wisdom, two principles um, to follow as we come into the house of God. And they are to keep your words few and to keep your word. To keep your words few and to keep your word. Let's explore this first uh, wise um, suggestion that the preacher gives us. Guard your step when you go to the house of God is how this chapter begins. It's how he begins this section. Now, what is the house of God and why is it important? Why is it a place that people should be even going to in the first place? Well, the house of God is actually central in the story of Scripture because in Scripture, the house of God equals God's presence. And what we could say is that really the biblical story is a story about presence, especially God's presence. It's about our presence too, but it's especially a story about God's presence. And it's a story about God desiring for us to be in his presence. This goes back to the very beginning of the biblical story when God creates human beings. Maybe you know the story, maybe you aren't as familiar with it, but God creates a place called Eden. And Eden is to be a special place because keep in mind, God has created a whole world. But Genesis 1 and 2 and chapter 3 where uh, humanity falls, um, these three chapters take place in a particular space in the world called Eden. 
And Eden is special is because it's where God's presence is. It's where God is dwelling with his image bearers that he has made. And if you're familiar with the biblical story, you know that in chapter 3, I just mentioned the fall of humanity, what happens is that human beings run away from relationship with God. And so they lose God's presence. They become separated from God's presence, which is their best um, thing in life, to be in the presence of God. And they're separated from it. And from that point on, the biblical story is a story about God providing a way for humans to once again have access to his presence. Now, maybe you are familiar with the Old Testament somewhat, and you're familiar with the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or you're familiar with the temple, and like, why? Why? Why, why do these places exist? Well, these are examples of God tangibly placing his presence among his people so that they can begin to have access to it, so that they can begin to taste of it again. And so when the preacher writes these words for us, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, what he has in mind is specifically the temple. The temple was where the Old Testament people of God went to worship, where they went to access God's presence in a special way, in a communal way. And what the preacher wants us to know is that there are wise ways to go into the house of God and there are foolish ways to go into the house of God. Now, the phrase that he uses means, it it literally means to watch your step. Not because the steps outside the front of the temple are necessarily steep, but he means it figuratively to watch your step, to guard your step. In Proverbs, another book of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, um, feet are used for human conduct. So that's really what the preacher has in mind here. It's it's a, a statement about human conduct. In other words, he's saying, be careful about your conduct as you go into the house of God. Be mindful of it. Don't be careless as you go into God's house. Really, this is a critique of superficial religion. Because what the preacher is warning against is an attitude or a posture of the heart that would have us go into worship and think, it doesn't matter what I say here, it doesn't matter what I do here, because ultimately, it doesn't matter what I say or what I do when I leave this place. It's a critique of superficial religion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I consider myself to be religious, but I don't have that posture or that approach. Well, it can oftentimes be subtle. It can include things like reading the confession of sin just to do it, to go through the motions. You're not even really reflecting on what you're saying. You're just saying it because that's what's expected of you and others in the context of worship. So you just mindlessly say the word. You carelessly say the word. I think that would fall under what the preacher is getting at here. It's an example of not watching our step. It's an example of participating in superficial religion. Now, that should encourage us. Um, And especially for those of you who maybe you have been disconnected from church for a period of time, uh, maybe recently. And I don't know, maybe this is your first 
time back in a church space in quite some time. You've just had anxiety about coming back because of hurt you've experienced or um, um, immorality that you've witnessed in the church. It, you know, it could be any number of things that have caused you to become de-churched or unchurched. But I want, what I want you to see here is that the preacher is actually critiquing that very thing that you would critique, that very thing that has maybe hurt you in your life, that has caused you to be disillusioned with the faith. The preacher is critiquing that very thing. The preacher is critiquing superficial religion. And so he says, guard your step. Be careful. Don't enter into the house of God mindlessly and carelessly. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, he says. It's interesting. Listen. How do we listen to God when we come into God's house? The preacher isn't implying that we necessarily audibly hear from God. But what I want you to think about, especially in the way that we construct uh, our worship service using liturgy. liturgy. Liturgy just refers to the structure of the service. The way that we structure the service is, well, two things. One, we do so so that it tells the story of God. If you've ever wondered why we follow um, the, the themes of creation, fall, redemption, and renewal in the, the service is because what we're basically doing, what we're attempting to do is rehearse the drama of redemption together. We're reminding one another of what the story is, the true story of our lives, so that we can be sent out at the end of the service to live rooted in that story uh, in the world for another week. So we construct the service to tell God's story, but we also construct it in such a way to reflect that worship is a dialogue with God. Worship is a dialogue with God. I want you to think about this. Um, for, I mean, we started the service this morning with um, a song, but really the service begins with a call to worship. And yes, it is somebody up front reading that passage of Scripture as the call to worship, but really what's happening is that God is calling us to worship. God is inviting us. He's extending a welcome to us to come. And so God begins the conversation in worship. And what do we do? We respond. We respond in song or songs. Um, we sing of God's worth in, in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And then we get to the confession of sin. And we speak honestly with God about how we have fallen short of his desires and expectations for us, how we have failed to love him and our neighbor throughout the week. And so we speak to God and confess that. What happens after? God speaks to us in the assurance of forgiveness. It's always a passage of Scripture in which we hear from multiple angles over the course of a year of the variety of ways in which Scripture communicates to us that if we confess our sins to God, we are forgiven because of the work of Jesus. And we, we keep going, right? It's a dialogue. It's a conversation with God. And the way that we especially listen in worship is by giving attention to God's word. Not only during this time, during the sermon, but throughout the service. 
as we hear the call to worship, as we hear the assurance of forgiveness, and so on and so forth, um, the service is woven together by the authority and power of God's Word. And God calls us to be attentive to His Word. And this is what the preacher is getting at. The preacher is urging us to have a posture of humility, a posture of listening as we come in to the house of God. There are so many contexts in life where we um, maybe speak. Um, Maybe some of those contexts you would say, yeah, I know what you're talking about because this person I know, they always speak too much in that context. Could be that somebody else is thinking that of you. Um, But we have all kinds of contexts in life where we have the opportunity to speak. And we have the opportunity to speak in worship. But that should be done in the context of us wanting to first and foremost being attentive to the words that God speaks to us. Because his words are life-giving. His words uh, represent eternal life to us. They represent the good life for us. And so it is wise for us to listen and to be attentive. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Again, the preacher is critiquing superficial religion. What he's critiquing is this participation in worship where we kind of come flippantly into the house of God. Now, it might not be obvious to, your, to, to others or even to yourself, but we come in with this flippant attitude, this posture of the heart where we're just going through the motions, we speak the words of the, con- the confession of sin like I was talking about because it's just what we do, it's what is expected of us, and so we're just talking, right? We're talking, we're talking, we're talking without thought and without the primary context being to first listen to God's voice and to hear what he has to say to us. I don't know, maybe it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's this kind of approach to worship, this kind of participation in worship that ultimately leads to a lifestyle of superficial religion. Because what we do in worship trains us. It forms us. Worship is a formative experience. And if all we're doing is simply saying, uh, saying words, pretending to be pious because that's just what religious people do, and we're not wanting to really listen to God's word and have him lodge it deep down into who we are so that we would be changed, what happens is that forms us and we go out and live lives that are dis, um, disingenuous. We, we go out and we live lives that are separated, separated in the sense that you know, we, what we say we believe doesn't necessarily reflect how we live. And here's the thing. I want to come back to this. This is so much of the critique of the church, particularly in um, our context today. You know, you might say, well, some of it, I don't know if it's valid, but let's be honest, a lot of it is valid. Because there's too many examples of God's people not living their lives that reflect what they say they believe, what we actually find in God's story and what he calls us to do and who he calls us to be. There's a a separation between the two. And as people see that, what happens? 
They think to themselves, well, there's nothing real about that. There's nothing substantial to that. Why would I want that? And so the preacher critiques superficial religion for a number of reasons, for our good, but also for the good of our neighbor. Does that sound weird to you? It, it shouldn't, because remember, worship is a formative experience. And what, is hap- what God is doing to us and in us, even during this time by the power of his spirit, is meant to bear fruit in the, for the good of our neighbors in this upcoming week. We'll talk more about that um, at the end. So what the preacher here, this first Um, piece of wisdom that he is offering to us is to keep our words few. He's not telling us to never speak in worship, but he's telling us to keep our words few, to, for our primary um, posture to be one of listening. Yes, we will respond to God, but we want to hear what the living God has to say to us. Because it's his word that heals us. It's his word that puts us back together. It's his word that brings salvation and life. Verse 3, or actually verse 2, is, he, he really begins to, to make this clear. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, know your place. Know your place. Now, this isn't meant to be condescending. Preacher says, basically, God is God and you are not. It's not condescending. It's wisdom. When we learn to actually believe that and live according to that, it restores our humanity back to us. Because our humanity is diminished when we try to put ourselves in the place of God. When we think that we can control our lives or the world around us better than God can. When we um, decide that we're going to create the standards and rules to live by, not God. What these, these things ultimately do is they diminish our humanity. Because God is the one who gives our humanity to us. He is the one who knows how life is meant to work, and he invites us to walk in his way so that we can experience that. And when we step outside of that, it diminishes us and others. So it's not condescending to say, know your place. It is actually a very, uh, it's, it's the beginning point of wisdom in many ways. He's going to end this section with, God is the one you must fear. In the book of Proverbs, it says that, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This word fear does not mean you're terrified of God. It means that you revere him. It means that you make him central, that you seek to build your life around him because he is worthy and because his ways for you are ultimately good and lead to flourishing. So know your place in order to experience life to its fullest. Know your place. God is God and you are are not. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Twice in these seven verses, the preacher is going to quote a proverb um, that has to do with dreams. And it's a, a little confusing to make sense of what he's saying, but 
I think that what he's saying here in this particular proverb in verse 3 is that overwork leads to many dreams. This was actually a view or a belief uh, in ancient cultures that dreams equal the unreal. And much work can lead to an illusion, to a lack of reality. And the way he connects the two um, to make his point is that he's basically saying the more you talk, the more you make it all about yourself. And the more you make it all about yourself, what happens? You move further and further and further away from reality. Again, God knows how life is meant to work best. And life doesn't work best when you make it all about yourself. Now, sometimes it, it feels, it, that seems contrary, doesn't it? It seems like oftentimes when we do make ourselves number one, when we focus on ourselves at the exclusion of others, um, for a time maybe we think that it leads to flourishing, it leads to the betterment of our lives, but in the end it doesn't because we were made not simply for ourselves. And it's just helpful for us to consider this. The more we talk about ourselves and make it all about ourselves, the further and further we move away from reality. So keep your words few in God's house, meaning to come with a posture of humility and listening. The second piece of wisdom is to keep your word. This begins the section verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 and 5, the preacher basically quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, another Old Testament book, um, basically word for word. He says, when you, make a when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. In other words, don't make a vow if you have no intention of fulfilling it. Now, I, I think... In our context, it looks a little different than it did in Old Testament worship in the temple, for example. Um, the taking of a vow uh, in the context of worship in the temple involved um, a person making a promise to do something. That's no different for us. But a, a person would make a promise to do something like offering a sacrifice. And what could happen is that if they, they would have this attitude that if God would um, respond favorably to a petition that they had or to a request, that they would then make the sacrifice, you know, to kind of pay God back. But making a sacrifice was costly. And so often what would happen is that people would not follow through with their vow or their commitment. Maybe God came through um, for them, but they just lived their life in such a way that they took it for granted. And they never got around to offering that sacrifice that they had committed or promised. So here, the preacher is warning us against, I don't know, we could say having a casual relationship with God. One in which we just say things to say things. You know, we can pull again from the example of the confession of sin. Sometimes we just read what's up on the screen because it's up on the screen and everybody else is reading. And sometimes in that confession of sin, especially toward the end of confessions, we sometimes make a commitment that we're going to live differently in a particular area. 
And there are times where we just simply read the words because they're there. But we don't necessarily have any, give any thought to or intention in following through and actually living our lives in such a way the upcoming week that would reflect the promise or commitment that we've made. This is what we could say is just simply carrying on a casual relationship with God where it matters when it matters, it's important when it's important to us, but otherwise we kind of just go through the motions thoughtlessly. But the preacher wants us to take our vows seriously. The preacher wants us to follow through with the commitments that we make, especially in our relationship, our relationship to God and in the context of faith in general. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? All right, who is the messenger? That's a little strange. Um, Makes me wonder, who would be the messenger here in our context of worship? Well, the messenger most likely is someone who could have been a priest, or a Levite. The Levites oversaw worship in the temple. So it could have been a priest or someone like a Levite who would hear the confession of people. Would, he would, would hear the commitments or the vows that people make. And the messenger would actually follow up with the people over the course of their lives to make sure that they followed through. Most likely that is the role of the messenger, to follow up with people after they've made public vows. Again, what's being referred to here is the making of promises and commitments that you have no intention to keep. The preacher is addressing deceit. Deceit. Now, probably for most of us, we would pretty quickly say, yeah, we don't like deceit. Deceit is ugly. Um, We certainly don't like to be deceived by others. And oftentimes when we have actually committed deceit against others, we see it, we don't like that either. But there are such subtle ways that we live deceitfully. And again, it reflects back on this separation that happens with our religious life and the rest of our lives. We separate the two. God desires something different than that, and we're going to talk about that in a few moments as we close. But this subtle deceit separates us. It divides us. It disintegrates us, in a sense. It's not the life that we were made for. We were made to live lives in which what we say reflects what we do, and what we do reflects what we say. So that we are embodied wholes, offering our lives to God as living sacrifices. This deceit can be so, can be so subtle. And it, again, I keep coming back to this example, it can include things like just simply saying the words on the screen with real no intention of reflecting on them or giving attention to living them out in the upcoming week. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one who you must fear. Another quote, proverb quoted by the preacher that has to do with dreams. And he's making a similar point to what we already saw. The more we talk and talk and talk, the more we're prone to make life about ourselves. 
And when we make life about ourselves, we move further and further away from reality. And so where words increase, there is vanity, there is vapor. It's not substantial. It's not strong enough to to carry us through life. And the preacher wants something else for us because it's what he is pursuing in his own life. Uh, I've quoted from Zach Eswine uh, a few times already during this series. He was one of my seminary professors, and I think Israel maybe had him as well. Um, And he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. And I want to share something that he says um, in reflecting on these verses. The preacher tells us to guard our steps when it comes to church because sometimes when we walk into the sanctuary, what we find there is evil, bombast, arrogance, and slick speech with poor relational follow-through. I'm going to read that again. The preacher tells us to guard our steps when we come to church because sometimes when we walk into the sanctuary, what we find there is evil bombast, arrogance, and slick speech with poor relational follow-through. It's a life of deceit. It's a life of superficiality. And it's a life that oftentimes leads to all forms, many forms of evil. And again, we see this, sadly, um, too often in the life of the church in our context. And yes, we can say things like, well, you know, Christians are human too. Christians make mistakes. All of that is true. We are all sinners saved by God's grace. And it doesn't mean that we're transformed into a, uh, a person who never sins any longer or who isn't prone to deceit. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But what we're talking about here is an approach to the faith, an approach to worship, that forms a certain kind of person. And that certain kind of person is what I think Zach Eswine is describing in this quote. So we're not talking about, you know, this upcoming week, you know, despite your intentions, maybe you commit deceit against another person. We're not talking about those kind of slip-ups in life or the examples of, of, of sin that we might commit. What we're talking about is a certain kind of lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle that is actually formed by a certain kind of worship. And that certain kind of worship is a kind of worship in which we make ourselves central and not God. We talk, we talk, we talk. We use pious language. Um, We say what we're supposed to say. But it is very far from the reality of our hearts. That's what the preacher is warning us against. He's warning us against being a church of superficiality. He's he's warning us against being a church of deceit. And so where do we we go with with this wisdom? Well, I think it's helpful for us to see that this has implications for both insiders and outsiders those inside the church and those outside the church. Because if we are, at the end of the day, being formed into people that are disintegrated, that are separated at the core of who we are, 
like our faith has nothing to do or doesn't transform the whole of our lives, then that harms us. It shapes us into the wrong kind of person. And what's behind all of the wisdom literature is really, I think, a simple question. Who are you becoming? Because the wisdom literature is intended to make us whole. The wisdom literature is meant to put us back together again. The wisdom literature is meant to root us in God's creational design so that we can be the people we are supposed to be, so that we can do the things that we're supposed to do to cultivate shalom, wholeness, and flourishing around us. And when we are formed into something else because we participate in superficial religion or faith, it harms us as insiders in the church. But as I said earlier, it also harms outsiders. It harms those outside the church. Because for the most part, how do those outside the church formulate their understanding of what Christianity is? Whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, it is based on how they see people who claim to be followers of Jesus living. And why would those outside the church want anything to do with a superficial way of living? There's plenty of other superficial forms of living in our culture. We don't need to add another. And so, where do we go with this wisdom? What do we do with it? What are the concluding thoughts, basically? We need to recognize that worship requires wisdom. There are wise ways to participate in worship and unwise ways. And the wise ways have to do with being thoughtful, with being reflective, with desiring to actually come into worship and have the Holy Spirit put us back together and make us whole. So that increasingly, our lives are characterized by actions that reflect what we say, or our words are characterized by our actions, by how we actually live. What's interesting here is that this, we're, we're in chapter 5 now. Not quite halfway through the book, but we're getting there. And this is the first mention of church, so to speak. It's the first mention of a religious space. Because prior to this, remember, the, the preacher's been acting as our tour guide taking us on an exploration of life, telling us what is true about people, places, and things. And it's not until chapter 5 that he actually offers some wisdom as it pertains to the house of God, to a primarily religious space. What do we make of that? I think part of what we make of it is that in the biblical story, there is no division between the sacred and the secular for a person of faith. All of life is meant to be lived as an act of worship. All of life is meant to be lived as an act of worship. This is why in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about offering ourselves as living sacrifices. You see what he's doing there? He's connecting the whole of the biblical story. He's connecting the worship of the temple and the offering of sacrifices to what it means to follow Jesus on a daily basis and there's a claim on the whole of our lives that we offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. In other words, the whole of life is the context for worship. There is no sacred and secular 
division. All of life is to be lived in relationship to God. And that's why I think the preacher can get to chapter 5, and even though he's not spoken anything about specifically religious settings, he's been talking about religion the whole time, about how we live our lives in relationship to God in every area of life. Integration and wholeness is the wisdom that lies behind this. That's where this wisdom leads us. It's how it forms us. In worship, when we approach worship wisely, we keep our words few, meaning that we have a posture of listening and humility, and we keep our word, we, we, say, we, we seek to live out the things that we say in worship, when we commit to those things, when we live wisely in those ways, we get put back together. We get made whole. We are reintegrated. All of our sinful parts are, made, are redeemed and put back together as a whole that can worship God. That's why fear is the beginning of wisdom. It's why this, the preacher concludes this section with fear God. Again, don't be terrified of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to revere God. Put God first. Make God central because it's the beginning of wisdom. Once you have humility in your relationship to God, recognize that God is God, you are not. God can begin the process of reintegrating you and putting you back together. What we're talking about here is a way of being. A way of being where your your life is gradually characterized less and less by deceit, characterized less and less by superficiality, and more and more by a wholeness in which you are leaning into your life and seeing that all of life, every area, is an opportunity to worship and to love others. I came across this quote this week um, that I think applies. Christian discipleship demands surrendering to the process of holistic transformation of character as an inescapable priority of the gospel Jesus preached. In this way, the gospel is how Jesus provides for human beings to experience the unbridled wholeness, unbridled wholeness God originally intended for us to experience and share. And so, I want to invite you. I want to invite you into deeper wholeness. Is this something that we can commit to as a church? Is this something that we can commit to as individuals? And the reason I'm asking it as a question and not making assumption is because we don't want to make vows that we're not going to keep. We don't want to be superficial. But let me tell you this. Deep down inside, I can tell you that you do want this because it's what you were made for. You were made for this kind of wholeness. You were made to make God the center of reality in your life. You were made to offer your life as an act of worship to God because as you worship God, you are made whole and in process, you participate in making those around you more whole. But it ultimately centers on Jesus. And I I love that about the quote I just shared. Talks about how this character formation is a priority of the gospel that Jesus preached. Because not only 
does Jesus teach us how to be more fully human. He actually did something for us that we could not do ourselves. Jesus went into the house of God and there was no deceit found in him. Jesus went into the house of God and there was no deceit found in him. Jesus, the son of God, the perfect one, he lived life rightly and wholly, the way it was meant to be lived in relationship to God, in relationship to others, in relationship to the places in which he dwelt. And he offers a way for us to participate in his life. As we confess our deceit, as we confess our superficiality, as we confess our sin to Jesus, Jesus is willing to forgive us. Not only willing, but he's able to forgive us because of his work on the cross. But not only does he just pay the price for us, not only does he just pay the penalty, but Jesus gives us new life because he rose from the dead. And Jesus invites us to participate in his resurrection power. And that resurrection power transforms our character. It makes us different. It makes us whole. It gives us the power to actually offer our lives as living sacrifices to God in the whole of life. Let's pray to Jesus now. Jesus, we thank you for your word, for how it's our guiding authority. We pray that you would guard us from superficiality in our faith. Pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would make us whole, that you would put us back together so that we might be the image bearers that you created us to be. I pray this for myself. I pray this for my brothers and sisters. I pray that increasingly we would be a community in which our words are aligned with our actions and our actions are aligned with our words. For your sake and the sake of our neighbors, we pray. Amen.